We'll read this morning from Genesis beginning in chapter 22, verse 20, through the end of chapter 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Huz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Rima, also bore Teba, Gaham, Thahash, and Mekah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price, as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered in at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me. The land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, four hundred shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. To feel no sadness at the contemplation of death is rather barbarism and stupor than fortitude of mind. So says John Calvin on the subject of grief at the loss of a loved one. This morning, we come to that place in the text of Genesis where we have recorded for us the death of Abraham's wife, Sarah, Abraham's grief for her death and his arrangements for her burial. 
Death is a reality that we have all faced at one time or another. All of us have probably experienced the passing of a loved one, a spouse, a parent, a sibling, or even a child. And so as we come to this text, we can all relate in one way or another to the grief that Abraham experiences. And as we look at his grief this morning, we can learn from the example of this man of God as he mourns the death of his beloved wife. But more than that, we can see the significance of burial and the hope that attends Christian burial and also the faith that Abraham displayed in his burial of Sarah, particularly in the land of Canaan. Now, before we explore Sarah's death and Abraham's grief, I do want to deal briefly with the last few verses of chapter 22. We're told that at some point after the testing of Abraham's faith and before the death of Sarah, Abraham had some news from home. Now, remember that he left his homeland in Ur when he was 75 and followed the leading of the Lord to the land of Canaan. And so at at this time of testing in chapter 22, we said that he was likely at least 120 years old, which means that it had been at least 45 years since Abraham left his ancestral home, left behind his father's family, perhaps longer. And so he receives news of his family. His brother has had children and grandchildren and were given their names. Interestingly, the names of Abraham's nephews here total 12, which is the same number of grandsons that God had promised to Abraham through Ishmael back in chapter 17, verse 20, and it will be the same number of great-grandsons Abraham will have through Jacob, who will be the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So I take this list of Nahor's sons then to represent Uh, and indicate the fullness of his descendants. Uh, The 12 tribes of Israel are the fullness of the nation of Israel. And so here, Abraham's family, his extended family, back in the home that he had left behind, Nahor has 12 sons. But notice that in this list of 12 sons, eight of them are born to him from his wife and four from his concubine. And we are specifically told that one of the sons, the youngest son of his wife by the name of Bethuel, had a daughter by the name of Rebekah. Now, if you're a first-time reader of the scriptures, you might not know why that name is important. But I think you would have to recognize, looking at this list, that something significant is being indicated by the fact that one granddaughter is named amongst this list of Abraham's extended family. And of course, we will see in the coming weeks why it's important, as this Rebekah will be Isaac's wife. She is to be the bride of the promised son. And so here we're introduced to her as being the granddaughter of Abraham's brother Nahor by his wife, not his concubine. So just as Isaac is the son of Abraham's wife, Sarah, and not the son of the maidservant, so also Rebekah is the great granddaughter, or the granddaughter born through Nahor's wife rather than through his concubine. So this little paragraph at the end of chapter 22 is setting up for us events that will happen in chapter 24. But it also has some bearing on the events of chapter 23. 
as we move into chapter 23, we come to the record of Sarah's death and uh, an indication of her legacy. Chapter 23 is an interesting chapter for a couple of reasons, and, and one of them is right here in the first verse. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Now, that might not seem particularly interesting at first glance, but when we stop to consider the fact that Sarah is the only woman in all of Scripture whose age at the time of her death is recorded for us. This is common for Scripture to tell us how old one of the patriarchs was at the time of his death, so we expect it. But Sarah is the only woman whose death is recorded in this way. Now, given that the Holy Spirit is the author of all of Scripture, that means that this didn't happen by accident. It has some significance. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, plays a very important role in the Scriptures. She is one of only two women named by name in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And there it says of her that by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now, Sarah had her faults. She had her doubts. And we've seen these in previous chapters. But she was a woman of faith. She believed the promises of God, as did her husband, Abraham. And so we're told in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham is the father of all them that believe. So also Sarah holds a similar title. In Galatians, by way of analogy, Paul likens Sarah to the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the church, and he calls her the mother of us all, the mother of all who believe. And in Peter's first letter, he says something similar, speaking to the women of the church, exhorting them to pursue humble, gentle, and godly attitudes of the heart. Peter says, For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid of any terror." So women, Sarah is your spiritual mother, so to speak. She is an example of godly humility and submission that you are to follow and emulate. So given that Sarah is called the mother of all who believe and that she is a godly example to be emulated, it makes sense that she would be given this distinction in chapter 23. Her death is recorded for us as the matriarch of the faith in a similar fashion to the records of the deaths of the patriarchs. So Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. She had a long life, 127 years. As we begin a new year, we think about the passing of time and about our age and how quickly time passes. Sarah lived 127 years, and she left a godly legacy when she died. She has the additional honor of being the first in the family of Abraham to be buried in the promised land, which has great significance, which we'll address shortly. But we're told in verse 2, So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So Sarah, this great woman of the faith, dies in the land of promise. 
She has gone on to her reward, but her husband, Abraham, is left to continue his pilgrimage. When C.S. Lewis's wife died, he wrote some of what he felt and experienced in the days, weeks, and months after she passed. It was later published in a short book titled A Grief Observed. And at times, uh, especially near the beginning of the book when his grief is fresh, uh, his writings are a little raw, very honest, and at times even irrational, which is odd to say that about something C.S. Lewis wrote. But here's the first entry that he made in this journal after the passing of his wife. No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or having a concussion. There's a sort of invisible blanket between me and the world. I find it hard to take in what anyone says, or perhaps hard to want to take it in. Now, if you can remember a time when you have lost someone close to you, you may have experienced something similar. I know that I did when my dad died. We know that Abraham experienced grief when his wife Sarah passed. We don't know exactly what he felt. Scripture doesn't tell us, but we know that he mourned for her. In verse 2, Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So Sarah is grieving over the loss of his wife, a wife of many years. And note that Abraham was not present with her when she passed. He came to mourn for her. It wasn't a long sickness that gave them advanced notice that she might pass away. Abraham wasn't expecting it. Had he been expecting it, I think he would have been there with her. He was away somewhere, perhaps tending his flocks or on business of some sort. But when he is told, he he comes to Hebron, where they had first settled at the end of chapter 13 when they parted ways with Lot. And it says that he mourned and he wept for his wife. Now, it doesn't tell us how long he mourned. And you all know by experience that you can mourn for a while and then kind of get on with the routines of life only to be hit with more grief later. But Abraham had pressing business that prevented him uh, from wallowing in his grief. Abraham did not have a funeral home nearby to embalm the body and to arrange for the funeral. Sarah's body needed to be dealt with before it began to decay. And so he had to arrange for her burial, and he had to do so quickly. And I think this was probably a blessing that kept him, uh, limited his uh, time of mourning. I'm sure that he grieved later as well, but he grieved and mourned for a period of time, and then he had to get up and deal with the affairs of life, which included caring for the dead. So it tells us in verses 3 and 4, Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now Abraham is nomadic. He lives in tents. He's moving around, finding pasture for his flocks. There are a couple of places like Hebron or Beersheba, where he tends to spend a a certain amount of time, but he, he has no permanent dwelling place. 
But now that Sarah has died, he is looking for a permanent burial place. He's determined that it will be something that is deeded to him by right and not a temporary resting place. So he negotiates for a cave in the field in which it is located to to purchase it to be a burial site. And he goes through an elaborate negotiation to gain possession of this location. And he finally does uh, gain the, the land, includes the cave, the field, the trees that surround it. It tells us in verse 17 that uh, all of the surrounding borders were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth. So there are witnesses to the transaction. The land belongs to Abram at this point. So he has mourned and wept for his deceased wife, and now he buries her. Now, given his nomadic lifestyle, the lack of a permanent home to dwell in, there are two things that we might have expected Abraham to do at the death of his wife. For one thing, I don't think it would have surprised us if we had read that Abraham sought to take her body and return to their home in Ur to bury her. In fact, we see this elsewhere in Scripture, that these things happened. When the children of Israel are in Egypt, Joseph takes his father Jacob back to Israel to bury him rather than burying him in Egypt. Joseph makes his son's promise to take his bones back to the land of promise as well. So it wouldn't have surprised us, I think, if Abraham had done that. He's living as a foreigner and a visitor, he said in verse 4. He's been in the land for 62 years at this point, but he still considers himself a foreigner. Now, at the end of chapter 22, he just received news from home. That's where his family is. It would make sense that he might want to take her home and bury her there. But that isn't what he does. He's determined to bury her in the promised land. Abraham was looking forward to the promise of God concerning the land. By burying Sarah in Canaan, Abraham demonstrated his confidence in God's promise that his descendants would possess this land. Hebrews tells us that by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Now that promise was the promise of the land to be an inheritance for his descendants. In Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 17, the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. So God has promised Abraham this land to be a possession, an inheritance for his offspring. In chapter 15, though, God told him that his descendants would be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years before coming into their inheritance. Chapter 15, verse 13, Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. 
But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Ammonites, Amorites is not yet complete. So Abraham has these promises from God. This land is to be a permanent inheritance for your offspring, for your descendants. God, he, Abraham trusts God. He trusts God's promises. So when Sarah dies, Abraham, believing the promise, looks to bury her in the land God has promised. It's a testimony to his faith. He trusts his descendants really will possess this land. Because he trusts, he can choose a burial site here rather than taking her home. And we see a similar thing happen in the book of Jeremiah. The prophet there uh, prophesies to the people, speaking the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity. And then Jeremiah's uncle comes and he he wants Jeremiah to buy a piece of land under the, the laws of redemption. And Jeremiah does so. And we think, well, it would be foolish to spend money to buy a piece of land if you knew that the the nation was about to be destroyed and the deed to this land won't be any good. The Babylonians won't honor it. Jeremiah knew this was going to happen, but he also trusted the word of the Lord, which had come to him. Jeremiah 32, 15, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. So he buys the land and he takes the deed and he has it put in an earthen jar and stored in a safe place that when the people return 70 years later, that deed will still be good. Jeremiah trusts the promise of God. That's what Abraham is doing as well. He trusts God's promise that this land will be their home. And so he puts his faith into action by burying Sarah in the land. John Gill put it this way. He says, Abraham was willing to have such a place in the land of Canaan for this purpose in order to strengthen his faith and the faith of his posterity and to animate their hope and expectation of being one day put into full possession of it. And what makes this especially interesting is chapter 23, like I said, is interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that this record of Sarah's death, the uniqueness of it, But the other thing is, is that chapter 23 is one of the few chapters in the book of Genesis in which there is no mention of God. None. God is not mentioned at all in this chapter. Abraham doesn't hear from God. His wife has died. There's no record of God speaking to him to comfort him. No record of God reassuring him of the promises. But like the book of Esther, God may not be mentioned, but his fingerprints are all over it. It's Abraham's faith in God that directs his actions in the burial of his wife. And notice that he doesn't let the Canaanites give him the land. First, he asks for a place to bury his dead in verse 4, and they respond in verse 5, the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Abraham has humbled himself. He has bowed before these people. He has called himself a foreigner living among them. And they treat him with great respect. They call him a mighty prince. They offer him his choice of the best burial locations. But Abraham doesn't want to bury Sarah in someone else's graveyard. 
He wants a plot of land that can be used by the family in time to come. So he suggests one piece of land that he is interested in. And Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth, and he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. So Abraham requests this specific plot of land, and he says that he wants to pay for it. He doesn't want it given to him. So the owner of the land speaks up in verse 10. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Notice how emphatic Ephron is. He says three times in verse 11, I give it to you. In the presence of witnesses, this isn't a loan. This isn't burying Sarah in someone else's graveyard. I give it to you to be yours. It will be deeded to you. There are witnesses who can testify that this transaction has occurred. It is a gift. What is Abraham's response? Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you the money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead. Abraham insists on paying for the field. He doesn't want it to be given to him. Ephron then insists that the value of the land is insignificant. It's only 400 shekels. That's nothing between the two of them. But Abraham weighs out the money and he buys the field. And once the land is bought and deeded to him, then Abraham buries his wife, verse 19. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. Now, it's repeated, verse 17 and verse 20, both tell us that the land was deeded to Abraham after he paid for it. The entire exchange between Abraham and Ephron is friendly and respectful, but it, it puts us in mind of another episode earlier in the history of Abraham's sojourn in the land. Remember when Abraham rescued Lot in chapter 14? He didn't just rescue Lot. He rescued all of the people who had been taken captive and recovered all of the goods that this invading army had taken with them. And when he returns back to the land, he's met by the king of Sodom who asks Abraham to give him the people but then says Abraham can keep the material possessions. He can keep the goods. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread of a sandal strap, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Abram believed the promises of God concerning the land. He believed that God was the ultimate possessor of heaven and earth, and he is unwilling to let the Canaanites, whether it is the wicked king of Sodom or the friendly and respectful and generous Ephraim, he is unwilling to let them receive any of the glory or the praise for keeping God's promise. Only God 
will receive the praise for this. And so he will not accept the land at no cost, but insists on paying for it. He does so. He buys the land and he buries Sarah there in Canaan as a testimony to his confidence in God's promise that his descendants will possess the land. In a couple of chapters, we'll come to Abraham's death and he'll be buried in the same cave. Later, Isaac and Rebekah will be buried there. And finally, Jacob and Leah will be buried there as well. And eventually, in God's perfect timing, Abraham's descendants will return from slavery in Egypt and possess the land fully as their inheritance. This small field and the burial cave at the end of it are but a down payment on what will belong to future generations by right of the promise of God. And so by burying Sarah in the land of promise, Abraham is demonstrating his confidence in God, that God will keep his word, and that his descendants will possess the land. But that is not the extent of Abraham's faith. His faith goes beyond just an inheritance in the land. It extends to eternity. Earlier, I said that given his nomadic lifestyle, there were two things we might have expected Abraham to do when Sarah died. One was to return her body to their ancestral home. The other is that we might have expected Abraham to opt for something less fixed than burial, perhaps cremation by a funeral pyre. But that's not something that he seems to have considered at all. He wants to bury her. This is something we see consistently throughout the scriptures, burial rather than burning. Cremation has become a popular choice in recent years, even among Christians, and I'm afraid we don't often think through the distinction between burial and cremation and what they each represent. Throughout Scripture, burial is what God's people do. In fact, burning the body of someone is an act of desecration rather than an acceptable means of dealing with the body of a loved one. I mean, think about this. In the Old Covenant system, they had sacrifices. The sacrifices were made by fire on an altar before the Lord. Burnt offerings, they were called. Consider this description of a burnt offering from Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus 4, beginning of verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat, as fat is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. If he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish. Then he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they kill the burnt offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offering made by fire to the Lord. 
so the priest shall make atonement for his sin that he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. Now we know that the sacrifice of these animals does not actually atone for sin. They were signs and symbols pointing towards the atoning sacrifice of Christ. It was obedience to these forms and faith in God that resulted in forgiveness. But notice that it wasn't just that the animal was killed and the blood shed, but the sacrifice was burned with fire on the altar. The fire reducing the sacrifice to ash demonstrated the judgment of God upon sin. If we fast forward to 1 Kings chapter 13, King Jeroboam has become king and he is leading the people in idolatry. He has built altars in the high places all around the country. An unnamed prophet shows up and pronounces the word of God. 1 Kings 13 verse 1, And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. Now the prophecy says that Josiah will burn the bones of the pagan priests on this altar. In 2 Kings chapter 23, this prophecy is fulfilled. And Josiah uh, has begun his religious reforms. He's breaking down altars, putting an end to idolatry around the land. And then it says this, Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made, both that altar and the high place he broke down, and he burned the high place and crushed it to powder and burned the wooden image. As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain. He sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. This was an act of defilement. There is nowhere in the scriptures where someone is intentionally burned, and it's a good thing. Consider the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God rained down fire from heaven. And as Paul read from Peter in CLA this morning, he reduced these cities and the surrounding plains to ashes. It was a sign of God's judgment on their sin. Burning is always synonymous with judgment in the scriptures. Burial is the norm when a believer dies. And so I've been asked before, well, does that mean that if someone is cremated that they won't go to heaven since it's a sign of judgment? Well, that's a good question. The short answer is no. Cremation of the body in no way prevents the soul from entering heaven. But here's the longer answer. We are creatures of flesh and spirit. We possess a material body and an immaterial soul. The two, flesh and spirit, are joined together in one being. When the immaterial soul or the spirit is parted from the material body, that parting is called death. In the second chapter of Genesis, God creates mankind, and he does so by shaping dust from the ground and then breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. Later in the chapter, God tells the man what will happen if he disobeys God's one commandment. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it 
you shall surely die. The word die there means breathe out. So when we talk about death, we often say things like, well, he just stopped breathing or he breathed his last. We instinctively know that the breath is tied to life. And the interesting thing is, is that in both Hebrew and Greek, there is one word that is used both for breath and for spirit. We understand death to be the departure of the spirit from the body. Consider this description of Jesus' death in the Gospel of Luke. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. When the body is dead, the soul lives on, but the two are parted. Likewise, Jesus told the thief being crucified next to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief's physical body certainly died on the cross. Yet Jesus promised that he would be in paradise that same day. Obviously, Jesus was speaking of the man's soul. And so James writes and says that the body, apart from the spirit, is dead. So then we might ask, well, what, what happens, does what happens to the body after death have any bearing on the soul? Well, in the examples above, the soul departs the body and is immediately with the Lord in heaven. What might happen to the body afterwards does not then cause the soul to be expelled from heaven. If it were possible to do something to the body after death that would affect the soul's resting place, then Jesus would not have said this in Luke 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. If burning the body after death would inflict further harm on the person's soul, then enemies would surely do so. In some pagan cultures, that does happen. But Jesus says that when the body is dead, the enemy is powerless to do more. When we die, our soul lives on. But what happens then? What about our body? What about our soul? Do all souls go to the same place? Well, I'll quote from our confession of faith. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into paradise where they are with Christ. And behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, Scripture acknowledgeth none. Now, there are a number of Scripture references as footnotes to this paragraph in the Confession. The one I would call your attention to this morning is Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. When we die, our soul returns to God and our body returns to dust. But that's not the end of the story. The bodies we currently have will die. They will compose and return to dust. But one day, they will be raised physically. If you're a Christian, one who has placed your trust in Christ, then your body will be raised incorruptible to be like Christ in his resurrection. Here's how the scriptures describe it. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body 
by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Christ, by his boundless power, will resurrect our bodies from the dust and change them to be like his glorified body. But there is no material difference to the power of Christ between dust and ashes. When the Bible says that Christ, by his power, subjects all things to his will, that includes both dust and and ashes. Neither will prevent him from resurrecting and glorifying our bodies. There are plenty of Christians who have been martyred through the years by being burned. Their bodies will be resurrected just as easily by the power of God as one who has been buried. But having said all of that, burial is the Christian way of dealing with the body of the deceased. Cremating the body doesn't stop God from raising it in glory. But for the sake of those mourning the loss of a loved one, burial more accurately symbolizes the hope of the resurrection. Burning, as we have seen, is a symbol for judgment and destruction, while burial creates a picture of hope and anticipation. When my dad went to be with the Lord a number of years ago, that hope was very important to my grieving process, to see his body laid in the ground in anticipation of Christ raising it on the day that he returns. That was meaningful. We've already seen that Abraham believed in the power of God to raise up Isaac from the dead had his death really been demanded. So Abraham believed in the resurrection of the dead. Abraham believed in God's promise of a Messiah, a Savior who would atone for sin and undo the curse that came as a result of Adam's sin. And the major part of that curse was death. If Christ is going to undo the curse, he must undo death. If there is no resurrection, then as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Abraham's faith was in vain. In this life, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Paul goes on then to compare the burial of our physical bodies to the planting of a seed. If you plant a seed, it decays and then it springs to life. And a plant that is more glorious than the seed is the result. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterwards the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And as, as was the man of dust, so also are those who were made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So just as we picture Christ's burial and resurrection and baptism, so in the burial of our bodies, our resurrection is anticipated and hoped for. For Christians, this is an important aspect of the grieving process. In his letter to the church in Thessalonica, Paul wrote these words, 1 Thessalonians 4, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. How can we grieve with hope? By anticipating the resurrection at Christ's return. How do we remind ourselves to do that in the midst of the fog of grief and sorrow? By burial. By laying a body to rest in the ground. That's why burial is so important and to be preferred over cremation. Again, God can raise a body from ashes as easily as from dust. It makes no difference to the power of God. It makes no difference to the deceased. But it makes a big difference for those who remain. Abraham didn't have Paul's letters. He didn't have the full revelation of God's word that we have. But he was a man of faith who spoke with God. And I think he probably understood more than we might be inclined to give him credit for. I think he understood and anticipated the resurrection. And that is why he sought to bury Sarah. Because he mourned and wept for his wife, but he did not grieve as one who had no hope. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Hebrews tells us that he saw the promises from afar. He was assured of them and embraced them, and so he grieved with hope. Matthew Henry said that Abraham buried Sarah to be a token of his belief and expectation of the resurrection. For why should such care be taken of the body if it is to be thrown away forever and not to rise again? Abraham in this said plainly that he sought a better country, that is, a heavenly. Abraham is content to be still flitting while he lives, but secures place where when he dies his flesh may rest in hope. That is a hope that we share as believers, a hope of a future resurrection of our bodies to new life, glorified, free from sin, sickness, and death. And when Christ returns to consummate his kingdom and establish his throne in the new heavens and the new earth, we are told that at that time, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So when we face death as Christians, as those who believe the promise of God as Abraham did, let us grieve with hope for a future resurrection. Let us remind ourselves of this hope by Christian burial, planting the body in the dust in anticipation of it being resurrected to glorified life in the image of Christ and after the likeness of his resurrected body. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.